All right, so we're talking about um, sexuality. This is our part three in regards to um, sexuality. I want to do a little bit of review um, from last week, kind of the basis and the foundation of sexuality. We're kind of going uh, deeper into the theological realms right now. Uh, we will get much more practical in the next couple weeks just in regards to what we're facing with in regards to the destruction of sex in our culture and, you know, and the blessing of sex in a marriage and, and those things and the dynamics of male and female, which is extreme dynamics um, because we are way different. Um, so we will definitely get into that. And, and I also want to um, just remind you as well, I just want to say thank you um, for being an audience. Sometimes you guys are like going, well... You know, I wish I knew this when I was young, but I'm not here right now. I mean, I'm over this is a whole different stage. Well, that's what happens when we talk about sexuality is there's so many different stages of sexuality, but there's always this extreme richness that does take place. But when we start talking about topics of, you know, uh, pornography or start talking about different topics, well, I don't struggle with that. Um, Well, some people are going to say I do. Some people are going to say I don't. But we're talking to the crowd. So that's why we're picking these topics speaking specifically to the crowd and what this is going to be is it's going to be a resource for anybody that walks in my office and says okay uh what is your thoughts about this topic or this subject and what i can say is go listen to the recording that took place in 2018 i did a series on it called sexuality it will allow me to be able um to do that so thank you for being here thank you for listening take what you can get take what you want um and uh and and then we'll leave everything else to other people that walk in the door because this is recorded. So it's just a little bit of review that we talked about last week. A foundation um, of sex. Number one, the body split from the soul is called death. Um, the soul and the body are meant to go together. Now on the topic of sexuality, we can say it this way, no sex without commitment, body and soul is God's incredible plan about sex. You keep the body and you keep the soul together. When I talk about the soul, I'm talking about the person. So you have the body and another person and the exclusivity of that couple is the most powerful thing you can possibly have. Um, Last week we talked about the exclusivity of one person and one man and one female being together would be the greatest blessing of joy, happiness, strength, uh, prosperity all the way through that commitment is God's design and if it is his God's design you will be completely and entirely blessed the foundation is body and souls do not split what does that mean number two death takes place when you become naked physically but not naked emotionally personally socially or economically um, what do I mean naked physically um, the culture remember this is review the culture um, does not has a low view of sex. And what I mean by a low view of sex, they say, oh, well, you can sleep with somebody and it's no big deal. It doesn't touch your heart. It doesn't touch your mind. It doesn't touch your emotion. You can go here, you can go here, you can go here. It's not that big of a deal. The culture says that, but nobody believes it. Nobody believes it because we feel that dirt that's inside, whether we know God or not. Everybody believes that sex is an exclusive relationship, one person to one person, and there is not a single movie that is out there that ends up, wow, I've got two wives, and it is the most wonderful thing in the world. No, because sex is so exclusive. But it's not so exclusive body to body. It's exclusive emotion to emotion, person to person, social to social, economical to economical. Let me give you an example. Somebody walks in my office and says, you know, we're having a very difficult sex life and uh, we're just not connecting. In fact, we haven't been having sex and we don't know what to do. What kind of counsel would I give them? Well, take your clothes off. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, no, you don't give them that counsel. You know what? You <laughs> what kind of counsel do you give them? You guys got to connect emotionally because what takes place is body to body connection without emotional emotional connection is death is destruction body connection without personal connection is death see the body and the soul they go together and social connection 
it's, if they're not going together, it's at death. So what were you talking about? You talk about, okay, we need to work on, let's get emotionally connected. Let's get personally connected. Let's get socially connected. Are you guys economically connected? Are you guys one unit? Because if you're not one unit emotionally, personally, socially, and economically, it is death to be one unit sexually. It is death to be one unit sexually. This is God's design for marriage. What takes place in marriage is that you get married and you celebrate marriage by what? Being emotionally, personally, socially, economically together as one and then you celebrate it in the sense of being physically connected. The exclusivity is the power of our sexuality. And as soon as we go outside of exclusivity, what are we going to have? We just split soul and body. And never forget what happens when you do soul and body. Death brings, brings place, um, comes as a result of separating soul and body. And we all know this because I don't think I've ever heard of an adultery. I had adultery, and it was the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I can't wait to do it again. No, <laughs> we don't speak that way because it doesn't work that way. It brings that destruction because you just separated yourself and, and, and giving yourself a body, your body to somebody else and separated your soul, um, your soul from them. Genesis 2, 24. This is um, the design of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Look at this verse slowly. For this reason, a man will leave what does that mean, leave? Does that mean move out? Um, next year, my daughter's going to college. She's planning on going to San Diego. She is going to leave us. Um, is that all it means? No, there is a, an emotional separation. There is a personal separation. There is a social separation. And there is an economical separation that takes place when the man leaves his mother and father. Lots of dynamics. Why? Because he's going to be connecting with something that is brand new. People come and they say, you know, I've had a lot of um, problems with, with in-laws, which, you know, I hate to say it, so many people have a lot of problems with in-laws this verse is here describing that you are going to become an entire new unit. And it is difficult. I'm, I'm saying because I have two daughters. It is difficult <laughs> to let my children become an own unit with, with somebody else. And that's why in-laws or even parents kind of move in and just get that frustration and try to grab and try because it is difficult to make that unit. But according to this passage, we want to come this one solid unit for the purpose of health, where you have the emotional, personal, social, and economical unit together. So I talk about when we go through premarital counseling, ask the question, where are you going to spend Christmas? It's a big one. It's, it's, it's a huge one. Spending Christmas with family is great. That's wonderful. But just remember that you are a unit, and you want to work with that one unit because that is where you're going to bring life to the fullness of degree. Because what happens is children are going to come up. And when children are going to come up, that one unit is going to be strong, that one unit is going to be powerful. Yes, we surround ourselves with our in-laws, our extended family, and those things. But never forget that one unit trumps all other, all other units. And that's why it says you must leave his father and mother and then be connected, united with his wife. Number three, life takes place when you become naked physically, emotionally, personally, socially, and economically in an exclusive relationship. This is when life happens. This is science. And what I mean by science is the Bible swept away the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had a motto. And what was the motto of the Roman Empire? The motto of the Roman Empire is share your bed with everybody and keep your money for yourself. That was Roman Empire. Bible speaks opposite of that. What did the Bible do? When Paul started speaking in Romans, Paul started writing Ephesians chapter 5, he wrote the opposite direction of the Roman Empire. And what was that opposite direction? 
give your money to everybody and keep your bed extremely exclusive. That's the Bible. And that's what we've been reading for 2,000 years. And those who hold on to that concept have what? Have life. Those who hold on to the motto, keep your money for yourself and share your bed for everybody, ask them how happy they are. Ask them how much joy they are. Ask them how strong their country is. Ask them how powerful their unit is. Ask them their joy that is inside of them. You see what takes place is the the scripture and God's design of the exclusivity of the bed and the giving of the money. It's God's beautiful design of the salvation of the salvation of the salvation message. So this is just review, just explain the exclusivity is what carries the power of sex. So when it comes to all the things that this culture throws at us, all the movies of naked women that come up and all the stuff that's on the internet and all the pornography that's out there, all this sexual saturated area, what's it doing? It's trying to break the most awesome gift that God has given us and that is exclusivity, meaning that nobody knows my wife like I do. Nobody knows me like my wife knows me. And that carries a richness, not only a physical way, but naked, what? Physically, naked emotionally, naked personally, naked economically. My heart has been given to my wife as a connection in an exclusive relationship. And as a husband, what do I want to do? I want to hold on to that. I want to nurture that. I want to protect that. I want to make a covenant with my eyes because the whole world wants to take that away from me. And when the whole world comes to take it away from me, it's, it's coming to take all the blessings that God has for me inside of that specific unit, inside the marriage bed. All right, so that's review. Let's look at um, <laughs> the gospel is written within our sexuality. Uh, we must never forget that God is the creator of sex. Man did not come up with it. Um, and so when if God is the creator for sex and human beings not say, oh, let's try to do something new, and all of a sudden this stuff takes, well, this is a huge blessing, we should do this. No, this is why I don't believe in evolution. <laughs> There's a, so much dynamics that come in sex. It takes a mind that has wisdom, sharpness, and a will, and a drive, and a passion, and a purpose of everything to put that whole thing together. And God is the one that did it. God is the one that did it. But why did he do it? Um, why did he do it? Well, let's look into that. Number four, God does not want to rule us, though he does. Shepherd us, though he does. He wants to marry us. A lot of people go, what? A lot of people, when Jesus went to the cross and he stood there half naked, said, what? This is not God. This is not Shekinah glory. This is not majesty. But what? It was Jesus broken, beaten, on the cross. And as he was on the cross, he did not look like God, yet he could have called allegiance of angels to save him. It's a radical statement, but it is a statement all the way through the word of God. Yes, I will shepherd you. Yes, I'll rule you. Yes, I'll Lord, you'll be my Lord. Yes, you'll be my Father. But there is a goal and there is a mission in mind that give us a perspective of who God is and our relationship with him. And what is that relationship compared to? It is compared to a husband and wife. Isaiah 62, 5. As a young, maiden, a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Getting very specific about God's relationship to us. Now you might ask the question, well, why does he want to bury us? And I would say, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Why would he want to die for us? I have no idea. But mankind is the only one that is created in the image of God. And there is a relationship there that is beyond all the relationship that God has with his angels. It's a relationship that he has with mankind. And the Bible consistently speaks, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you, God. As a bridegroom, God rejoices over bride, his church. So your God is excited about you. That's the most theological concept that you just cannot grasp. 
But yet it's there. It's there. And all the way through the Bible, all the way through 1 John, 1 John says, you do not know what love is until you see Jesus love the people. That's that connection. Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What is Revelation about? What is Revelation about? Uh, we often think Revelation is about prophecy. Revelation is about the wars that are going to take place. Revelation is about all these things that are happening. And all those things are in there. But the Revelation is, is pointing us to a point of when the bridegroom comes for his bride and then eternity takes place afterwards. It's about the glory of Christ meeting the people that he died for. We are walking towards a wedding. Yet many churches could act like a funeral. God doesn't want churches to act like a funeral. God wants churches to have a smile on her face and say, I am saved by the blood of the Lamb. I don't know why, because he's a King of kings and Lord of lords, but I am saved by the blood of the Lamb, and for some reason, I don't know why, he wants me. He loves me. He's committed to me. How committed to me? Look at the cross, and he'll explain how committed he is to you. That is an extreme commitment. The reason why Jesus did not get married is because he's already engaged. Did you know that? <laughs> Who's he engaged to? He's already engaged to us. He wants to get connected with us, and the bridegroom will then come from the bride. Number five, um, a sexual relationship is not only given to us to enjoy, it has, been give, it has been created to give us as a foretaste to what it is going to be like to unite with Christ that is in heaven. What is it like to stand in front of a bride and say, this is my lady that's coming to walk down the aisle? What is it like to um, be connected into the reception and have everybody celebrate and everybody sing and everybody feast over this whole wedding that just takes place, that two are going to become one? What is it like to, um, to leave and to stand in the presence of, of your new wife? I'm just speaking from a man's perspective. Stand in the presence of a new wife and have her expose herself physically, have her expose herself emotionally, have her expose herself um, socially, economically. What is that like? Um, I know what it's like because I've, I've been there. Um, it's, a, it's an intense feeling. It's an awesome feeling. It is a good feeling. Why did God give us this in the first place? And does this, that whole wedding thing, say something? I believe it does say something. And the thing that it says is someday you will know God as he is. And that will be the wedding day. That you will know God completely as he is. Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We understand those concepts, that we are being united with our wife with one flesh, and we got the dynamics of this one flesh, but what is the one flesh talking about? Look at the last part. This is a profound mystery. The two that are connecting one day. But then he makes a radical statement, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. That one flesh relationship of when we see Christ face to face, and when we see him in all of his glory, and we see him in all of his beauty, and we see him in all of his majesty, and we see him completely and entirely exposed, what's going to take place to us? It's going to be the greatest experience we're going to have in our life. It's going to be something we're going to want to hang on to. It's going to be something we want to carry for the rest of eternity. It's going to be something that is not going to die. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Um, there's a real interesting concept, the connection that God has specifically with the body. And I don't, I'm not talking sexually, but I'm talking there's something that God has a connection with the body and, and with, with our bodies. And, um, and I'm just going to kind of give you what I think it is. Our bodies give God the glory more so than you can possibly ever imagine. And what I mean by our bodies giving God glory more than you could possibly ever imagine is that there will be a day that I will die. The day that I die, I will go into the grave. And let me explain what's going to happen when I go into the grave. I will rot. And Charles Spurgeon says, nobody would fall in love with me except the worms that are in the ground. 
it's going to look about as ugly as you can possibly have. But there will be one day, and it will be the wedding day of glory that will take place, that what will happen? My body will rise. No, not my, I'm just going to be a new person. My body will come out of the ground, and my body will rise, and I will meet the bridegroom in that process. There is a connection that God has with the body, and he, there's a connection that says, there's an exclusivity that says, do not keep it for sexual morality because it is mine. And then finish the verse. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he raised us also. So interesting. All of a sudden he talks about sex, but then he starts talking about the body's not yours. Do not give it to sexual immorality. Remember, your body is mine. And then he goes right to the resurrection to say, someday you are going to raise and the body is going to be with me for eternity. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. See what's taking place is God is not ever going to split soul and body. It's split with death, but he's going to put the two together, and it is going to be the greatest blessing we're ever going to have, and it's going to be eternally in front of, uh, in front of God. So must, I better go a little bit faster. Letter A. Um, what are we going to happen when we see God in the bridegroom? We will see him face to face. This is personally. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am completely and fully known. Do you see what's going to take place? Is that there will be no more wall between us. There will be no more clothes on us. And I'm not talking sexual, but I'm saying we will see God face to face. The barrier of sin will be completely taken away. How glorious is that going to be? How beautiful is that going to be? How exciting is that going to be? Um, I tell you that the relationship with my wife grows the strongest um, when we are personal with each other. What I mean by personal with each other is, yes, you can say sexually personal with each other, but I can also say that when we just share our hearts, uh, when we share our feelings, uh, when we share our mind, the more that we expose of each other, the tighter love relationship we have. And I don't expose myself to anybody, even emotionally. I mean, very many people emotionally expose nobody physically. But when I talk to my wife on an emotional level, when I, you know, even a sexual relationship have that physical level, when there's an exposure that takes place, there's a richness that takes place. What that is, is that's just a simple picture of what it's going to look like when the bridegroom comes for the bride. The exposure, the richness, the relationship, the beauty Everything is going to come up, and everything is going to come up in an extreme amount of power because one day we will see him fully face-to-face. We will know him part, and we shall know him fully even as he is fully known. Letter B, we will know him as, um, as he is. This is a, a sense of physically. First John 3, 2, dear friends, now we, know, well, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him specifically as he is. Um, again, go under bridegroom. Do you see the comparison that's taken place? We'll fully know him. We will see him specifically as he is. We understand that blessing in marriage, but what's it pointing to? What's it giving glory to? What's it sending us to? It's sending this time that we're going to be with Christ. Let us see. Uh, we will be co-heirs of Christ. This is, we will be completely and entirely connected economically. Many um, people and uh, many minds say, well, we, we're not going to, God's going to be, you know, way up here and, you know, and we're going to be, be here. What's interesting in Romans, it talks about the Spirit himself. This is Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. What is an, what is an heir? Um, an heir is um, somebody who receives an inheritance. Um, you can um, receive 10% and your brother can receive 90% and you are called an heir. Um, because you're a part of the inheritance. But what is a, a co-heir? A co-heir is that you receive 50% of an inheritance, 
and then my brother receives a 50% of an inheritance. That's a co-heir, an, an equal heir. Read this verse again. Now we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God. We're given to God and co-heirs of Christ that we are sharing in the same economical blessings because of what Christ has done for us. You see that family unit again that is being connected? How can we not be a Christian and how can we not go, this is going to be amazing. How can I not have joy? How can I not have excitement? How can I not have passion? Why? Because we're working towards a wedding. A wedding where we will be completely entirely connected, even economically connected. Letter D, we will be with him and amongst his class, his social class. Uh, what's God's social class? Um, right now, my, my wife and I, you know, we have our social class, people that we work with, people that we talk with, people that we're family with. We have the church that we're connected with. There's a, a social class that's taking place. Um, during the wedding day, when we see God, we are going to be in his social class. Read about his social class a little bit. Revelation 4, 2. At once, I was in spirit. This is John speaking. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And on that one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow and resembled an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 um, other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal in the center. Around the throne were four living creatures, and they covered with their eyes in front of their back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth had a, was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and covered his eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who, is, who was and is and is to come. There's God's social class. <laughs> we just got married. And when we got married, God is not just here going out. We get married, we're amongst this. That's what heaven is. That's what heaven is. We are amongst God's social class in heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. Number six, forever, eternally mine, all my love, soulmates. We are one. You light up my life. Show up continually in love songs because we are all intuitively connected to the bridegroom of Christ. I'm talking non-Christian. I'm talking about our culture. I'm talking about I'm flying to Africa. When I fly to Africa, you have love songs that are coming from America. You have love songs that are coming from India, uh, or not India, um, from, uh, from Paris. You have love songs coming from Europe. You have love songs everywhere. They're scattered everywhere. And whenever these love songs are spoken, they all have this one theme. The theme is exclusivity and forever. That's the theme. Now, we don't even know what we're singing about. We're writing songs and we don't even know what's taking place. Exclusivity. You are all my love and I will love you forever. Why do we say I will love you forever and we believe in evolution and the world will end and we no longer exist? But we still, when it comes to love, say I love you forever. Whether we believe in evolution or not, believe that something is going to stop. We still make those crazy wild statements, heaven your heart is all mine. Your love is all mine. I will love you continually. Our love will never die, even though we'll go into a grave. I hate to say it when bodies go into the grave and you do not believe you'll be resurrected. You don't want to be next to the other person. It's going to be pretty disgusting. But all these songs say that. Why are all those songs saying that? It's because we are writing what our heart is longing for. We are writing lyrics. Christians are not, it's our nature. Christians are not are writing what our hearts are longing for. And what are we longing for? We're longing for exclusivity and we're longing forever. That's, that's what we want. Well, what do we have in the entire Bible? Christ, exclusivity, my relationship with you, and forever. Yes, we see that in our husband and wife, but that's only a small taste to what it's going to be like for eternity. John four ten. This is Jesus that is at the well. And when he's at the well, a Samaritan, 
lady comes up, and as a Samaritan lady comes up, she asks for water. And this is a conversation that Jesus had with her. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who, is, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he's saying, Jesus is asking you know, to get water. He says, well, if you knew who I was, I would give you living water. I'd give you water that would last forever. Remember who I am. I'm the bridegroom. Everything you want, everything you desire as a person, you would have specifically in me. That's a conversation they had. John 4.15 says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. I want this living water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to come here and draw water. Why would she say this? Is because this is what her heart is longing for. She wants to be full. She wants to be committed. She wants to be um, sacrificed for. She, uh, sacrificed for, I don't know if that's the right word, but she wants to be in love is what she wants to be. She wants to be full. What does Jesus say after she says this? He points directly to where? Her love life. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? Jesus told her, Go call your husbands and then come back. Look at this conversation. Here's a girl that wants to be filled up, full of joy, full of life, have a living water where her cup is overflowed, and Jesus says, how many husbands do you have? He went right back to her love life. Why would Jesus go specifically to her love life? And you know, to finish the story, she says, well, I've got five husbands, but why would Jesus go to his love life? Because he's a bridegroom, and we're the bride. And one day our cup will be overflowing, and it even can be today because we can embrace God. You see, what takes place is the longings that we have, we try to find in something else. And that longing is to be connected exclusively and also eternally and never be apart from that one person. But that connection is not with five other husbands. That connection is specifically with Jesus. That's where our hearts are longing from. Number seven, Jesus does not say that I will pour my whole self into you and don't mind if you are committed. Did Jesus pour his whole self into him, into us? Uh, Jesus poured his whole self into us. He lived specifically for us. He died specifically for us. And he rose specifically for us. And he says, you are the bride and I am the bridegroom and everything that I have given to you will come and we will be connected with a love connection that will last forever. But right now, as we watch this cross, as we see this resurrection, and as we see this, see this life, um, does God really care if we don't really care about him? Ezekiel 16, you adulterous wife. This is God talking to us, and this word adulterous comes up all the way through the Bible. God is looking at his wife, looking at us, and calls us, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. You prefer strangers to me. See, he's talking this concept of a love relationship that is someday going to get married. And even in a sense, you are committing adultery because of the idols that you're going through. Now, this is found in Ezekiel. You can find some passages in Ezekiel. It's like, whoa, that's deep. I don't understand this. But all the way through the New Testament, this word adultery is used. James 4, you adulterous people, I live for you. I died for you. I rose for you. I want to have a relationship with you. You adulterous people, don't you know that the friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How can any of us Say that God's not working, looking forward to this wedding because he gave so much and it, he expects nothing in return from us. Through the Bible, he just comes right out and says, you're committing adultery. You're committing adultery with us and God. You love in the world and you're not loving him. Mark eight thirty eight. If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes to, in his glory with the holy angels. And then Second Peter 2.14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the, uns the, uns uh, the unstable. Uh, they are experts in greed and accursed in brood. Accursed brood. So what's taking place here? You have an angry God 
that is looking at us saying, you stop committing adultery. If my wife committed adultery and I was not angry, we would not be in love. <laughs> it, just, it just would not happen. And the reason why is because we are so connected physical, emotionally, economically, we are so connected that if that connection is broken, it would fuel us. Well, see, what happens is that God laid down his life for the connection that we would have in this relationship, and we break the connection consistently, and what does God do? It fuels God, and you get passages like this saying, stop it. We have a relationship, and you're committing adultery on me. What does this say? This is that God's in love with us. That's what the whole scripture is about, is God is our king, God is our Lord, God is our Father, but God is in love with us. And when we start to love somebody else besides him, what do we see? We see wrath. We see anger. We see frustration. I put this together, and as I put it together, you're ripping it apart as you consistently commit adultery. We know what adultery means because we've seen it here on this earth, and if you see it here on this earth, we understand its pain. The reason why that picture is there, because again, our heart is moved towards this bridegroom. And someday the bridegroom will come for his bride. And we need to understand that we do not want to be separated from him as we're living here on this earth committing adultery. Number eight, a lot of people want to sleep with God. Sorry, I just had to say it. Want to sleep with God, but they don't want to marry him. We come up with this huge concept of, of who God is. And we come to this concept of, um, of how God responds to us. And um, the concept um, is built in our mind, and then we exist through this concept. And what we do is we get a lot of guilty people. We get a lot of angry people. We get a lot of people that are scattered, a lot of people that are confused, a lot of people that are oppressed, and a lot of people that are destroyed, because we're coming up with this concept of who God is and the way that God is responding to us. And that concept is what's defining our relationship with him. And guilt comes, oh, I'm not good enough for God. I should not have God. Um, and then anger comes in a sense, I prayed for this specifically for two years, and God refuses to answer me. Why would I even want a relationship with God? I'm done with God. All these emotions are coming from the concept of the way that we are viewing who God is. And the scripture does what? explains to us, I'm a bridegroom, you're the bride, we're in love. I will forgive, I will give, I will sacrifice, we will be connected, and one day we will hang on to each other. But what we want to do is we, well, we want to sleep with them. And in other words, you answer my prayers, God. Um, you make sure you give me the mansion that I want and the mansion that I'm working for when I get to heaven. Um, God, I'm, I'm coming to church you know, once a year, that should be enough. Um, to get me into your kingdom. So what we're doing, we're building this, and God's saying, stop all of it. <laughs> stop this whole concept of the way that you view me. View me as somebody that is in love with you. Somebody that is in love with you, and then be specifically in love with me. What's going to happen if that's going to take place? <laughs> Joy, happiness, same thing is going to happen if it happens in your relationship. Joy, happiness, strength, don't sleep with God and want all these things from God and say, well, God, I, don't, I want everything but, but you. Matthew twelve thirty nine says, he answered, a wicked and adulterous, here comes the word again, adulterous generation asks for miracles and signs, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah, the sign of the prophet Jonah, saying that I am going to be alive. Three days I will go, I will be alive, and I will be with you. Nothing is being given to you except me, and it's going to be enough. So my challenge is to you is whenever you look at Scripture, look at Scripture not as, and, and look at God and view God as a relationship of a God who loves you, not a God who is going to condemn you, throw you away, annihilate you, a God that wants to oppress you, a God that wants to push you, a God that wants to destroy you. That's not the God that we have. A God like that would not die on a cross for us. God wants to marry us and don't sleep with the world and say, oh, okay, God, I, 
you know, I'll, I'll sleep with you, but, you know, I don't want to really have you specifically. Heaven is having God specifically. It's not having the mansion. Uh, number nine, a lot of people want to receive an inheritance from God, but they don't want to marry him. We are um, narcissistic people. What can we get from God? And I will love him if I can get something from him. Let me tell you what you get from God. You get God. That's it. You get God. And it's enough. It's enough. Paul, watch that movie, Apostle Paul. And when you look at Apostle Paul, and he laid his life down like crazy. Apostle Paul, um, Paul, the Apostle of Christ. It's a great movie. I encourage you to watch it. He laid his life down like crazy. He had suffering after suffering and thrown in jail. He was tormented by a, by a thorn in his flesh. The thorn of the mess was a mess. Thorn in his flesh was a messenger from Satan that God refused to take away. That person, Paul, had all the reason in the world to hate. God, if it had in his mind that what God can give him more than having God himself. When you become a Christian, you get God, and that's enough. But we don't respond with joy, we don't respond with happiness, because we respond more to bargaining with God. I do this, you give me this. I do this, this should be mine. God, you should be really impressed with me. No, you get God, the relationship with him. Matthew seven twenty two. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never even knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Hear those words. I never knew who you were. What does that mean? That means you did not get God. I didn't know who you were as a God's words to us. The focus of a relationship and the focus of Christianity is of marrying God and having that relationship be exclusive, have that relationship be full, have that relationship um, be strong. Number 10, God must be your exclusive portion and we understand the dynamics of the joy and pain of the relationship because we understand the term one flesh. God gets angry when the, the, the relationship is not exclusive, like I would get angry or my wife would get angry if we committed adultery. Because what happens is when you receive God, you receive God himself, and there is a connection that takes place emotionally, economically, physically, a connection that takes place that we are now God, and he is a jealous God if we choose another one besides him. All the way through Psalms, we see David speak. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. Psalms 142.5 I cried you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. This is not talking about, I can't wait to get to heaven and be able to get this and that and the other and the rest and the peace and the joy. David is finding rest, peace, and joy right now because he has what? He has God now. You'll get him more after the wedding. But he has him now, and he's satisfied specifically with that. Mark twelve twenty eight. the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, this is the most important commandment. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and this is the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the most important commandment in the Bible. Love him. Love him. Make him your portion. So when you look at God, how should we view him? View him as a bridegroom and you're his bride. And what are you going to do? You should be falling in love. When we read the word, what should you be doing? Listening to the words of God for the purpose of falling in love. When you come to church, what are you should be doing? Come to church for the purpose of getting to know God more for the purpose of falling in love. When guilt overtakes you, what should you do with it? I've got a God who loves me that's beyond my guilt. When anger encompasses you, what should we do with it? Well, i got a God that loves me that will walk me through my anger. When you commit sexual sin, what should you do? You should be broken before God and say, God, I have stepped away from that relationship and grabbed a hold of something that is not true to you. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Take me back again, and he will consistently take you back again. But the relationship is the one thing that must be driving every aspect of your life. And however you look at that relationship, 
will determine your joy, your happiness, your peace, your excitement in regards to who God is um, and what he's done for you. All right, questions? Anyone? Gordon. Yes, I was wondering, um, nowadays it seems very popular to be cremated after you die, so, and your ashes are spread to the wind. And you were saying that you're body goes to the grave and then you are raised in the end. So I was just wondering, what's the church's outlook on that? Mm, good question. Do we have a half hour? <laughs> um, I'll just, the ones that f- flew into the World Trade Center, those innocent people, when is it, and they were completely annihilated, um, are they out of luck when the resurrection comes? Um, are the people that um, get cremated are they out of luck when the resurrection comes? Um, the most glorious thing that will ever take place on this planet is the resurrection. And we see that in Revelation that talks about that all the people that were thrown into the sea, now when people are thrown into the sea, think about what takes place. The fish eat them, and the fish walk away, and the fish poop, and all those molecules are spread absolutely across the entire sea. Revelation says... The sea will bring up the dead and every single molecule that has ever taken place and every atom would be put completely entirely back together. That is science because matter does not disappear. It is always an anchor. The most marvelous thing that's ever going to take place is that resurrection because this whole world is going to change. <clears throat> an explosive resurrection. It doesn't matter if you're cremated. It doesn't matter if you're dropped in the sea. It doesn't matter if you're in the World Trade Center. Every single molecule has been protected. And that's why the Bible does not talk about reincarnation. The Bible talks about resurrection. And resurrection is we are put back together. Great question, Gordon. Oh, I can't wait to get to Easter to preach. Oh, re- <laughs> resurrection. <laughs> that's, that's everything. Uh, everything. So, but very, very good question because people wonder that. But we're not working with a human mind. We're working with a divine mind. And uh, we praise God that every molecule is in his care. just want to bring um, um, one thing up because I went to Africa and uh, I was going to talk about this in my sermon but then I just kept on going theological and, and uh, going but our perspective of how our relationship with us of our wife or how our relationship is with our husband and that marriage um, needs to be the perspective of God in our relationship because that's what scripture has given to us if we warp that relationship we warp our relationship with, with God uh, we do. And the reason why I say that is because I went to Africa and they have some things that are culturally ingrained into them that, um, that is not biblical. And uh, one of the things that are culturally ingrained to them is extreme male dominance. Um, male dominance is the man's in charge and he tells the lady what to do and all she does is hardly even speak. Um, they say the way it is and if she does not obey, you know, what do you do? You slap her. You know, you got to make her. You got to make her obey. In fact, one of our, uh, one of our pastors, and it wasn't one of our pastors. Another pastor from um, another church. He says, "You guys don't slap your women in in, in uh, America." And it's like, no. And he's like, "Well, how do you get them to obey?" Well, see, the way that they view relationship is that man is like the dominant figure, and he rides over the lady. We are trying our hardest to break their church. And the way that we're trying to break their church is that there is a relationship between us and God. There's not, I am a pastor, and I'm dominant, I'm in control, I'm strong, and I tell everybody what for. I have more connection with God than you do. Well, Jesus wasn't that way. He was a servant. He laid down his life for us. He committed his life to us. So the relationship that we have with our husband and wife is a relationship that will go into our church um, because that's supposed to be the exact picture. So I'm struggling to seriously break the theological concepts of male and female because if we can do that, people will find Christ in Sierra Leone. When I talk about Ben Margai, Ben Margai has been completely transformed 
And he said, I have never heard the concept, love your wife like Christ, love your church, and then complete the sentence, and lay yourself, your life down for the church. He goes, I just quote the first piece. So he's grabbed on it, and he goes, I will love my wife, I will die for her, I will work for her, I will commit it to her, and he's changing the pastors. And I'll go over there, and I'll work with the pastors, but things are so engrossed into their culture, it's evil, that husband and wife, it has changed everything um, in the church. Changed absolutely everything in the church. Those two go together because it is the picture that we're supposed to have with God. And uh, it's interesting when other cultures have been messed up in that, under the, underneath that, that, uh, that concept. And, um, and I tell you, I had to bite my tongue, you know, a couple times. Shouldn't even get into this, but I had to bite my tongue a couple times because I just wanted to I just want to explain my pastors is that Jefferson Baptist Church has pastors and they just went through a cohort. We have second degree pastors and these are pastors that are elders in the church and those things. And then since we're doing a school, other people come in as well. And as these other people come in, we don't have authority over them, jurisdiction, but we're teaching them, we are training them. And uh, we hit every single hot topic that we can possibly hit. And the hottest topic is male dominance because it's going to change their church if they can figure it out. So I bring up female circumcision. And I said, all right, you guys are here. Let's bring it up. Let's talk about it. And I just listen as they talk about it. And I about went through the roof. Well, you know, it's, it's healthy. It's, it's biologically, it's good. It's, it's something that's it's the, something that works. And I mean, how, how do we control our wives? Our wives have sex drives. And if we leave and we go on a mission and, and, and we don't, the, the circumcision that's taking place, you know, we don't know what our wives are going to do. And I said, if anybody needs anything cut off, it's the man. <laughs> the man has a sex drive. The woman has a sexual emotion that, that takes place. So I said, hold on a second. I just want you guys to know, this is Sierra Leone, that the, America lives in a free country. And in that free country, if you did a female circumcision, you would be thrown in jail. I don't even care about your religion or the brutality of it. And they're like, huh? Are you serious? It's like, yes. But see, things were so engrossed in their culture of the male dominance. I finally asked one of the pastors, I said, okay, you just tell me how many people are, um, are for this and not. And he said 60% are not and probably about 40% are for it that were in their room. But see, that's when you guys pray, that is the teaching that takes place over in Africa. It's not American teaching. It's, it's the heart of the issue of relationship. And their churches will suffer unless that's turned. Now, that's all ugly news. But the good news, Ben Maragai and the church leaders that we have at Jefferson Baptist Church are bringing this new revelation to them. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and be committed to her and your whole world would change because the Holy Spirit that entered your country. So you can pray for us when we go to Africa, but those are some things that we end up talking about. All right, I'm over time, so you guys are dismissed.